Hi, I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This year was a big one for biennials, with the Whitney Biennial in New York, the Venice Biennale in Italy, Documenta in Castle, Germany, and many, many more. Earlier this year, our team at Artnet analyzed hundreds of these exhibitions over the past five years to identify the biggest stars of the biennial circuit. As we gear up for the fall art season, we thought it would be useful to revisit the episode where national art critic Ben Davis and Europe editor Kate Brown break down the surprising findings. The idea of working for exposure, that the visibility accorded to art on these stages translates into a career milestone that artists are willing to make that investment because it pays off for them. But then what's interesting is that the kind of art that that works for best, which is object-based, is the kind that is showing least, is not the kind that when you look at this list that recurs most at all. Hi, I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. You've heard quite a bit about biennials on The Art Angle recently. The Whitney Biennial, the Venice Biennale, and most recently, Documenta, which comes once every five years to Castle, Germany. On their own, each of these are closely watched events by art mavens looking to spot national and global trends. But they're also just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to a circuit of biennial and triennial art events that girdle the earth, popping up from Athens to Bangkok to Cuenca to Dakar to... I could keep on going down through the alphabet. With the newest Documenta now open, we asked ourselves, what if you could go to every one of these biennials? What kind of trends would you see? To answer the question, our writers examined the artists included in hundreds of biennials curated since the last Documenta in 2017 and found out which names came up most. The answers that emerged were surprising, even to us, revealing a list of biennial art superstars who have dominated the conversation among curators in the past five years. These figures make art cut to fit that circuit. They even have their own means of economic support. To talk about the findings of the biennial art project, today we have two of our writers who worked on it in conversation. Ben Davis, our national art critic, and Kate Brown, our European editor. You can read the full project, which includes an extremely long list of all the artists in our data set and an essay on what it means to be a biennial artist on Artnet News. In the meantime, here's Ben and Kate. Hi, Ben. It's great to be talking with you on The Art Angle. Thanks, Kate. It's good to be here with you after working with you so long on this project. It's good to finally have a chance to debrief. Definitely. Definitely. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm really tired after finishing this project. I can't remember feeling quite so wiped out by a writing project I participated in. Yeah, it seems you've definitely lost some sleep on this data dive that you did, especially trying to get all these numbers right for how many artists was it? A thousand? In the end, there are 1,599 names of artists that we could confirm were in two or more biennials in the last five years. Right. So data sets and numbers are not immediately what comes to mind when we're talking about biennials (laughs) or the people who show in them or critics like yourself who write about them. So what made you start this project in the first place and why did it feel important to do? Yeah, I don't know what you want to call this data criticism or something like that. But the answer is, for me, this project began with an artist called Gabrielle Chile, who's from Argentina 
and he makes these large sculptures that look like giant vessels or urns or something. And I noticed them at the Venice Biennale when you and I were there for its opening a few weeks ago. They open one part of the show and they're very striking. And I immediately recognized them from having been at the New Museum Triennial in New York, which I'd also seen. And it just struck a chord in my mind that I was seeing the same thing in two different places, in two different contexts, and it was kind of eerie. And I thought to myself, you know, what does that mean? What kind of other patterns are there? So as it turns out, looking at the data, Gabriel Chile, he's been around. He's been in at least four biennials in the last five years, but he's not even close to the artist who you would notice if you'd been to a broader selection of these kinds of global events as the most dominant voice. Right. The data was pretty surprising in the end. So you broke down the results to a top list of 17 artists, and then there's a full data set. Can you summarize who these artists like Gabriel are that came out on top and like who are the shining stars of this list? Yeah, well, I already said that there were 1,600 artists we found who were in more than one show. And of those, about 1,000 were in two shows and a few hundred more were in three or more shows. And then by the time you get towards the top, it's only something like two dozen artists who are in eight or more shows. So it's a very steep distribution, is my point. It's what you call a superstar distribution, the same kind of concentration of attention around a few stars that you see in the art market world, but just with a different set of names and a different set of concerns. So I'll just read you a bunch of the top names that came back again and again, just to give a sense of what we're talking about here. So there's Korakrit Arunanan Chai, a Thai artist based between Brooklyn and Thailand who makes poetic video montage. Uriel Orlo, who is a Swiss artist based in London who makes research-driven artworks and does projects about colonialism and botany. Lawrence Abu Hamdan, who makes investigative art, often looking at the idea of sound as evidence for various sorts of actual political cases that he investigates. Superflex, which is a Danish art collective that's been around since the 90s and is famous in the social practice world for making these witty, project-based artworks that are often aligned with actual social causes or movements. Then there's Tuan Andrew Nguyen, a Vietnamese filmmaker and installation artist who makes speculative films about memory and colonialism and cross-cultural experience, sometimes with a sci-fi edge. Chiharu Shiota, a Japanese artist based in Berlin who makes these impressive, immersive installations made out of big webs of colored thread. Naim Mohaiman, an artist from Bangladesh who teaches in New York, who makes documentary about the history of international political movements. Taus Makacheva, an artist from Russia who's known for using tightrope walkers and gymnasts and circus performers in these video and performances that are meant as metaphors about how people are shaped by memory and culture and heritage. And Zhang Bo, an artist from 
Beijing, based in a forest outside of Hong Kong, who makes works with plants about changing our relationship with nature. Sometimes his works are actually about an erotic investment in plants. Hmm. And it's so interesting because for many listeners, some of those names, it might be the first time people are hearing them. You could have your eye on every single... I'll be honest with you, Kate. This was the first time I was hearing some of those names. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be more cosmopolitan or I'm pretty aware of how (laughs) parochial New York is. So I'll just go ahead and tell you, I didn't know who Uriel Orlo was before I did this list. And... Neither did I. (laughs) That makes sense because he hasn't been in any of the events I've been in, but... He's very influential. I mean, he's very widely shown. I had never heard of him before you did this data dive, but I actually saw his work today at the Berlin Biennial in Berlin. And I was like, huh, I know that artist. That was one of the funny things about this list is that as I was putting together the data and, you know, there's always more biennials. You know, as you go through, it's just one of the things that I realized is just how many, the kind of biennial bloat there is. There are just hundreds of biennials. Some of them have sprung up just in the last five years. But the Berlin Biennial was really late in announcing its artist list, and it almost didn't make the cut into this data set because of how late it was. And I remember the artist list was out, and you sent it to me, and you're like, well, look at that. There's Lawrence Abu Hamdan. There's Ariel Orlo. And the whole thing's curated by Kater Adia, who is also very visible on this set. Yeah, It was an interesting experience because, of course, I was writing in parallel to you based on the data that you were making. But of course, we'd speak about the list frequently and another biennial, like you said, with Surface. Before we talk about the themes and some of the revelations of this list and what you've learned from doing this, can you just share with us how exactly you went through all this data? I spent a lot of nights with Microsoft Excel, finding artist lists, creating lists of biennials and triennials putting lists of names into a sortable spreadsheet. And I think this is a really interesting picture that emerges. It's interesting because it's hard to get all this data in one place. There's no central depot for it. There's lots of different places trying to keep track of the biennial calendar. But every time I thought I had a comprehensive version of it, something new would pop up. And I'm absolutely certain that there are things that are important that are not on this list. Nevertheless, I think the the pattern that emerges by the end is pretty clear. I mean, like I said, it's a very clear concentration around a few number of names. Yeah. So what were some of the biggest revelations or most shocking kind of things that you drew out from this? Not shocking at all to me, but something that it really hit home is just, like I said, how parochial I am. I think that the names that I went into this thinking were the top. I mean, people that I've seen again and again in biennials, like Alfredo Yar or Simone Lay. And so they're in the mix, but from a global perspective, they're nowhere close to the figures who are getting invited the most often Hmm. to biennials. And the list really hits home to me how much the theme of the last five years has been internationally a reckoning with colonialism. And it is extremely weighted towards figures who are from the global South, work in the global South, or work on themes about the global South. And I think it really just strikes me looking at it is how the United States and this kind of themes that dominate in our art scene are are very, not invisible, but really 
decentered from this. That's not the conversation that's dominating these events at all, which makes a lot of sense because of where they're located. These are global events. They logically plug into global conversations outside Mm of the very hyperlocal conversations in New York and even in a market capital like London, I think. Also, as a parallel version of that and a variation of that, from my perspective, China is a huge presence. You know, it's a huge presence in the commercial art world. There's a very vibrant art scene in China. There are many great artists from China. Chinese artists aren't very present in the top ranks of this list either, which was mm-hmm. interesting to me. Zhang Bo is from Beijing originally. He is based outside of Hong Kong. Cao Fei, who is a Chinese artist who specializes in digital artworks. She's based in Berlin. She was very present on this list. But that in the top regions here, there's not a lot of major Chinese artists. One of the next ones that comes up in the list is relatively far down is Ai Weiwei. And he's a big critic of China's based outside of China. That Hmm. really struck me as well. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be? Why the sort of absence of China? On the absence of China? No, that's a mystery to me worth investigating. I mean, there are Chinese biennials in the data set, but you spend as many nights as I have looking at these specific trajectories and ordering lists of biennials. And you do see pretty obvious patterns, like a U.S.-based artist is more likely to show in U.S.-based biennials And Chinese artists are more likely to show in China-based biennials. Artists from Japan are more likely to show at Japanese-based biennials. And then you also see that there are these pathways between networks of biennials. There are definitely top-tier biennials and then biennials that are more regional, but that also draw a lot of connections across the global south. I think there's a big axis between Latin America and Africa, for instance, that there's much more likelihood for crossover between those regions than there is for North-South crossover. Something I'll say is that I think that our image of world biennials is set probably by Documenta, which you talked about on a recent podcast, or by the Venice Biennale, which... I talked about another recent podcast here, which is kind of organized out of the tradition of world fairs and competition between international nation states for cultural prestige or the model of the kind of industrial prestige that came out of the international exhibitions of the 1900s. But there's an alternate tradition of biennials that comes out of the Sao Paulo Biennial, one of the other oldest biennials, which comes out of the global south and is very self-consciously about trying to create cultural solidarities, cultural visibility outside of that. There's some good writing about how there are different purposes for these things. And there's a tradition of building these alternate cultural pathways. And I think some of what you see in this slightly eccentric or surprising constellation of figures is the extent to which that latter pattern of kind of advocacy for a counterpoint to the kind of commercial dominance represented by New York and London or the United States and Europe is a project that is really represented by this large circuit of biennials. I don't know what the Chinese relationship to that is in this case. I mean, it seems to say something about the evolving status of China as a nation that was 
on the one hand, considered a developing nation and has a really grim history of being, you know, ripped off, exploited, colonized, but now is a superpower of its own and has a kind of cultural spotlight on it. I do think that the selections for biennials consciously and unconsciously tend to have a political character about what kind of conversation with what kinds of regions these curators want to have. Right, which makes sense because, of course, as we'll talk about later, funding often comes from these governments. So. Right, right, right. So other than post-colonialism, which was a theme that one could say is quite global at all these biennials, like what were some of the other art forms that you saw really dominated? Because it seems like there was several themes that really emerged. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt. And I think anyone who's been to a biennial kind of knows this. You go to the Venice Biennial recently, there's plenty of painting, but it's not the painters who are getting asked back. The people who are getting asked back, who are appearing again and again, are documentary filmmakers, people who make various forms of a genre I kind of call lyric documentary. Korkrit Arunananchai is a good example of that. He creates these videos that bring together political events with very personal material, with myths and legends, with queer club culture. And he fuses that all into one film that's kind of a collage more of an experience than a narrative that has bits of the truth, but bits of poetry in it. And whatever you want to call that, that is a very dominant genre. I mean, you will just see a lot of videos that have people giving you a whispery voiceover over grainy footage of real events and then poetry readings. I mean, that is the dominant biennial genre. I didn't include the actual numbers because this is not science at all, but I took the statements about the top 75 artists who are the people who have six or more biennial appearances on this list, and I put it into a word frequency counter just to see if any patterns emerged. And the word video was so dominant, it was like 10 to 20 times more present than painting in those statistics. And then after that, you had the word film and filmmaker. Somewhere lower down, you had installation, then photo, and way, 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 way down, you have sculpture and then painting. I mean, this list is dominated by people who do forms of documentary um, work or, in some cases, fictional filmmaking, but image-based work, time-based work. The other big keywords, almost to the point where I started to smile whenever I saw it, is the word research and community. I mean, you would think people are studying to get a PhD in sociology. There's so much research and community engagement going on. I think there's a disproportionate number of artists with PhDs in this top list. And Uriel Orlo is a good example of this. He did a biennial in 2019 in Democratic Republic of Congo, where he worked with a community of women to build a medicine garden, to create a community festival. That became an installation and that kind of work that involves sort of long-term investment and working with people that spins off forms of documents and documentary is very visible. I'll just say two more genres. Biennial art has a reputation for being political already. You know, these are civic events, so they have to justify themselves to civil society. So there's a 
social consciousness theme in biennials. But I think the last five years have been very political. The culture has been very politicized. And I think you really see that hardening. There's like a demand that the art deliver a harder form of political solidarity. So the collective forensic architecture is one of the most visible artists here. They were in numerous biennials. And what they do is a form of what they call forensic aesthetics, which they investigate real cases using experimental means. They're based out of Goldsmiths College. And Lawrence Abu Hamdan, who is one of the biggest artists, is a research fellow with forensic architecture. You can really see that that form of art as investigation has become really big. The final, very final thing I'll mention is, I guess, mad scientist art. I mean, there is a lot of just poetic technology, poetic scientific investigation. A lot of people's biographies say work collaborates with scientists on projects. I mean, that is the starting point for an awful lot of people in various ways. Poetic technology, poetic science, that's big. It's interesting, just as I was listening to you, I was thinking about how Karakrit perfectly touches on so many of those different themes. And it totally makes sense that he's therefore at the top of this list. I mean, his work is excellent as well. He has talked about how he really self-consciously wanted to create a form of art that brought together different things. That he thought that in art school, he went to Columbia, one of the elite art schools here in the United States. He thought that there was a segregation between art and life and different kinds of work. And he has created a form of art that really does like it hits all the themes you know it really does fuse together self-consciously all these other things in a way that to me is very pleasingly unresolved it really asks you how does all this fit together which is kind of beautiful yeah definitely so you also counted out some of the regions that showed up most frequently what did you notice there well i'd say the middle east is really present you can't compare events on this list because the five-year time period that we were in was very disrupted because of COVID. And a lot of events didn't happen or still to come or got canceled. So it's hard to look at one event and measure its influence because it's an arbitrary time slice and there's a lot of stuff going on. But if you kind of compare biennials that happen the same number of times and how many artists they had who appeared in other events. So you try and find what the most representative biennial is. The Venice Biennale, biggest and oldest of these kinds of exhibitions, is very representative. I mean, it has a lot of artists that appear in other events, but almost exactly as representative, as far as I could tell, was the Sharjah Biennial. Hmm. It has the two Sharjah Biennials lists we have have almost as many links to other biennials. So you really see how I think the the center of the discourse is spatially looking to the Middle East and Asia to another extent. Right. So Kate, you took on another aspect of this whole project, focusing on the market side. You spoke to several curators, artists, and dealers. So what did these international curators say when they saw this set of name? What was their reaction? I wanted to just look at the economic landscape, like really like what is the structure? Because we know all about what the art market is doing and we can chart that really well. But I was really wondering like how the driving factors work in this. So I thought there was no better place to start than talking to the curators. 
So yeah, I talked to Cecilia Alemani, who curated this year's Venice Biennial, and Daphne Ayas, who co-curated the Guangzhou Biennial last year. I think that what was quite interesting in both of their responses and during our conversations is that they acknowledged and they use the same word, the abyss between the art market and the biennial world. Right. And they described it as a growing space, that it was only growing apart and not more together, which is in some ways counterintuitive because I feel like I would have said it was going the other way. And Elamani noted how much the art market relies on paintings. And she had sort of said that without seeing all the data that really evidences that as we have seen. And again, repeated what you had said earlier, that per biennial and also biennials in general are really dedicated to conceptual and video artists and that these are just not works that you'll ever see going to auction. That being said, of course, Alemani's show had a strong presentation of paintings. There were many, many beautiful painters in that show. But I think it's really, again, like as you were saying earlier about who shows up again and again. These are often garnishing the show in a really profound way, but they're not underpinning every single one in a repeated sense. Daphne, who I spoke to at length as well, she's based in Berlin. She spoke about a real sense of anti-marketness that kind of unites some of these artists. And it's true that a lot of them do take issue with capitalism, neoliberalism. They're very mm. political and skeptical of the financial tools that drive the world and, of course, drive the art market. So it makes sense in a way that there would be this kind of disparity between these two worlds, so to speak. I mean, that being said, I think it's also important to mention that all these artists need to make a living as well. So, right. you know, money is a big factor. Yeah, well, this is, like we said, it's research-based art, it's community-engaged art. It's often project-based, like it often is just temporary for the duration of a biennial. These artists almost function like consultants come in to like fix a specific problem or to stage a specific workshop. Uh, we live in a material world. These artists have to reproduce their practice in some way. How is this art funded? I think that's one of the interesting things about your piece is that you really go into that. Yeah, because such an important question, you know, these are such prestigious events. And yet, as it turns out, they're quite fragile in the way that they're funded. I think my biggest takeaway was that there is no recipe for how people find funding. And even when you speak to one particular artist, it's often a piecemeal kind of approach. And I think that speaks to just how divergent these biennials are in terms of their own economic models. The Venice Biennial, for example, which is the most prestigious exhibition in the world on par or before Documenta, it doesn't really provide much funding at all for the artists, which is quite surprising when you think about it. Of course, it's negotiated individually, but largely the consensus was that they don't offer fees, really, or anything of note. Often galleries or private or public grants will step in to cover shipping costs, which artists are sort of left to figure out on their own. And so when artists have to do that on their own, then they obviously turn to where they live. And that also varies greatly, as you show by your research. I mean, if you're living in Vietnam, like Tuan Andrew Nguyen, who was on this list quite far at the top, he's living in Ho Chi Minh City. There's basically no funding for the arts. So he actually has never gotten public funding. A lot of the artists, as you noted in your piece, are based in Berlin, where there's like a very rigorously funded public art scene. So you can apply for a grant based on an invitation and usually get project funding. Yeah, I just want to say that because I didn't say it explicitly is that I think that's an interesting point about the regional stuff is that although the themes are the global south, when you look at it, a lot of these artists, I mean, I'd say more than half are based in New York, Berlin or London. So there is an interesting dichotomy there. 
And it makes sense, right? Especially when you're thinking about something as basic as shipping, that you would naturally and or intuitively right. just like gravitate to places that are closer to the European hubs or the North American hubs where these shows are happening. I mean, of course, there's many important exhibitions happening in Asia as well and all over the world. It raises a bit of a problem, you know, like one artist told me that he's heard that some artists even go into debt to show in biennials. Like they'll just take out loans and do it because of this sort of prestige. And so I think it's really something that the art industry needs to kind of reckon with, how much these biennials are starting to rely on artists themselves. And so, of course, that's where the market kind of comes in. And I think in most situations, especially with the artists that are at the top of the list, their galleries are funding a lot of what they're doing. A lot of them said that that's like the main backer for these shows. And so that's, again, where it becomes not a problem that they're trying to sell these works. I bring it up because I think that they're interlocked arms. They are sort of working together. There isn't a total abyss. And I actually think it's important to talk about that. You're talking about the gallery world and the biennial world. They're not totally parallel tracks that don't intersect. They're more like they weave in and out of each other. They definitely weave in and out of each other and they absolutely rely on each other. I would say a point that you make in the piece that I thought was really interesting is that the way public art institutions, these biennial or triennial festivals, justify the idea that they don't pay artists or don't pay artists enough to make in them is the idea of working for exposure, that the visibility accorded to art on these stages translates into a career milestone that artists are willing to make that investment because it pays off for them. But then what's interesting is that the kind of art that that works for best, which is object-based, is the kind that is showing least is not the kind that when you look at this list that recurs most at all. Yeah, exactly. There's like a total blind spot there. I spoke to the artist duo Cooking Sections, for example, and the work that they make would be extremely difficult to collect. I mean, of course, institutions will buy them, but they're often site-specific installations. And a lot of the work in these biennials, as you mentioned, are that. So it doesn't quite translate. I think another interesting thing that you did is you looked at who the galleries are who represent the artists in this list. And I guess it's not surprised that that also is a little bit of an alternative universe, that there are the mega star galleries that show the mega star market artists and that the galleries that are interested in supporting this kind of work are a little bit different themselves. What did you find? Well, actually, the gallery that's at the top of the list is a gallery based in Paris and Bogota called More Charpentier. They're not, you know, a gallery that maybe everybody has heard of, like some of the other blue chip galleries, but they have a very rigorous program and they have, I believe it is four or five artists, including Lawrence Abu Hamdan, Ariel Orlo in their program. And, you know, it was interesting because I spoke to them right after Freeze and without prompt, Alex Moore brought up this issue of the market being driven by paintings and how it's becoming increasingly difficult to sell video works, especially in an economy where everyone is trying to play it safe. So, yeah, I love this. Something you told me that I love is that when you started making these inquiries that some of these galleries were like really excited. You know, they're like, we're so excited. Someone's finally noticed that we're doing this work. Definitely. I, I think, you know, when you count things, sometimes you wonder if it's um, reductive in any way. But I think this project also really shows that it's absolutely not because it just shows you things that were not as visible before. And yes, when I talk to them, some of these people are like, we've been waiting for you. We want to talk about this on all the challenges and highlights that come with it. So 
Another gallery that showed up quite frequently who represents Ali Sheree and Alia Farid, who are on the long list, I believe, is Amana Fares. She was interesting to speak to, especially because she often is funding works in biennial shows with another business that she has. She has a construction business. And she does that in order to really allow her artists to work without having to think about selling their work so that they can make the kind of work they need to make while also keeping her gallery solvent, of course. And then she also mentioned that she estimates that about 80% of her sales go to institutions. But as Alex Moore from Moore Charpentier told me, it can take one to two years to close these deals with institutions because of all the bureaucracy they have to go through. So, you know, in terms of cash flow, I mean, these dealers are operating within a totally different framework than market-focused galleries. It's not a totally altruistic operation, right? I mean, there is some model of this panning out. To answer that from the side, you know, when I talked to Karakut, he said that he remembers an article that came out some years ago talking about how it's a bit of a problem that artwork is selling from biennials. But he pointed out very validly, like, well, we need to make money. Like, this is not a purely altruistic project we're trying to live, you know. And I think that that's true for the dealers as well. All of the ones that I spoke to were totally driven by passion and really believe that the artists that they're working with have something that is vital and important to say in art history. It doesn't surprise anyone probably to hear this, but a lot of them are also very politically driven when they speak about it. And that makes sense that they would represent artists like this. Of course, they hope for a return on investment. But, you know, if you want to compare it to the stock market in a way, it's like a slow growing mutual fund that really like grows slowly over years and that you can well only hope that it grows faster than inflation versus, you know, a very like hot and excitable kind of GameStop moment, which is what you will see in like a Sotheby's Now auction or something like that. So it's a totally different frame of mind, you know. And I think that that also folds into like a bigger question about the funding of these biennials, because a lot of them, if they're not paying for them directly, they're also helping their artists talk to different collectors or private patrons to sort of pull a pool of money together. We often talk about the dwindling funds for museum acquisition budgets, and this is directly going to affect these galleries more so than others. Right. I think that we've covered a lot of ground today. So as we come to the end of this conversation, what are some of the biggest takeaways from this project for you? Biennials are self-consciously international, so they are part of an international conversation. The curators who tend to be tapped to do these kind of things tend to be international hired gun kind of figures, you know, who are specialists in producing a certain kind of experience, bring their network of artists from place to place and are good at shaping these conversations. So they plug into an international conversation, but with local dynamics. So I guess the conversation I thought we were having, and I do think to a certain extent this is in the data, is a conversation about inclusion. I think starting around 10 years ago, there was just a lot of criticism of art biennials for their artist lists, for who was in and who was out and how white and male they were. And it became a really common journalistic ritual to tabulate those figures and criticize biennials for those things. And so when I first look at this list, that's what I see, is that this is a list that doesn't conform to those patterns that is actually very self-consciously looks elsewhere. I do think that it's really heavily dominated by a conversation around post-colonialism. Post-colonial, colonial, decolonial, colonialism are some of the most key words in these artist texts. I mean, almost close to universal amongst them. And 
This spans the era of Trump. So I think that in the United States, which put a lot of pressure on culture to deliver the political goods. And I think you see that in some of the conversations represented by these artists, albeit in international forms and responding to other crises well beyond the United States. I think the last five years were really when the most alarming reports about climate change came out. And that is the other master theme here. That in 2019 at the Venice Biennale, I remember thinking how much climate change factored into the concerns of the artists there and having this thought that I think this might be the last biennial where climate change was a theme, like people were making art about that as a topic because it was just becoming such a big theme that even art that wasn't about it at all had it as the background in various kinds of ways. I mean, you'd look at totally abstract sculptures and read the text and it would be like, evokes ruins from a future collapsed civilization <laughs> and so on. <laughs> that theme had become so present in people's mind, a sort of uh, gloominess about the future that it just pervaded everything. And you look at the artists who have been most present. I mean, you look at the top artists and a lot of them work with plants. Both Uriel Orlo and Zhang Bo say that they are engaged with the politics of plants. So they both use the same term. And I think that says something. I mean, people are really looking for some kind of redeeming relationship with nature. And you look at biennials in this period, a lot of them have been literally and explicitly environmental themed, cited in nature, or just very specifically looking at ecological themes. The current Sydney biennial is about water, for instance, and water politics. So that affects, you know, what kind of artists show up. Yeah. The very, very last thing, five years, which is the length of this study, which is the time between two documenta exhibitions is about the time period of a vibe shift. I mean, half decades are about how long it takes for the vibe to shift. And this has been an extremely somber and serious time. And you really see that in these artists. And I wonder how sustainable that is. You mentioned Cecilia Almani talking about the rift between the biennial world and the market world and how she thought it was growing. And that really makes me think of the film world. I mean, that's a comparison I've used on this show before that I use in my piece about this, that biennial art and festival film sort of have similar concerns and you can kind of understand the specificities of their audiences through like comparing them. There's this kind of middle-class audience that wants their entertainment to be more than entertainment that wants to feel edified to affirm their opinions about what's right in the world or have an ethical quality to a certain extent it fits into this conversation about ethical consumption ethical cultural consumption well in the film world you look at it and there is like a real crisis of those award shows you know their their audience has dropped it dropped and dropped and dropped because they don't tend to honor movies that people see and there's been this commercial imperative to you know, honor kinds of art that's not getting a lot of play. Otherwise, similar to in the art world, that there's like these extreme highs at auction for um, certain kinds of painting. And so there is a real pressure on these events to deliver something to sustain and support other kinds of artists. But 
I don't think there is a drop-off in the attendance for these big events, or I'd be interested to know what the attendance was. It's something that comes up. I mean, I think that there's a certain degree to which you can press art into being just becoming political activism or community celebration, at which point it stops to make sense to an audience as something that's worth supporting as art. And I, I wonder if we eventually hit that moment. Yeah. Just to wrap up, I think like with such pertinent topics being touched upon or delved into really deeply, it becomes so clear that there needs to be a more sustainable structure in the long term that is supporting these artists to make this kind of work. Otherwise, you get this cadre of globe-trotting artists who have the whatever kind of capital or connections they draw on to sustain that kind of practice, who do form a kind of elite cadre, making these artworks about the wretched of the earth. I mean, literally, the thinker Franz Fanon comes up a lot in these texts, and that becomes an ideological contradiction that is going to like hollow out the meaning of these things to a certain degree for their audience, because... The tension between that lifestyle and those goals is so great. But now we're already getting the speculative territory and, you know, there's so yeah. much left to do. So many nights <laughs> left to, uh, to be up uh, writing and thinking about these things. Nice talking to you, Ben. Yeah. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening. See you next week.